1: When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller karras
2: Well, welcome to Resiliency Within. I want to let you know that we're broadcasting live also on Resiliency Within's Facebook page. If you'd like to see um, Judy Pearson and myself, you you can do that as well. But today, my guest is Judith L. Pearson. Her latest book is published by Mayo Clinic Press. Um, it was published in September of 2023. Um, and Judy, what is the name of your book? i love for my guest to say their, the name of their book out loud.
3: Oh, man, I love saying it out loud. It is, <laughs> <laughs> it is Crusade to Heal America, The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker. Well, and Judy, which she uh, has
2: asked me to call her, I love your name Judy by the way. I want to say that um you're a pretty remarkable person and you put remarkable in the title for Mary Lasker but I'm going to tell you tell my my um my guests right now the audience why I believe that's that's true. After Judy was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, she founded a second act a nonprofit that raises funds for survivors ready to launch, and I love this, or or grow their second acts after cancer. In 2014, she was honored in Washington, D.C. by the American Association for Cancer Research, a former member of the Society for Integrative Oncology and the American Psychosocial Oncology Society. She's a graduate of Michigan State University and now lives in Venice, Florida. Judy calls Mary... Lasker, the fairy godmother of medical research. I love that that title, by the way, Judy, who positioned herself at the crossroads of politics, science, and society. And that's not an easy thing to do ever, and also not an easy thing for a woman to do when she was doing her work, but Lasker's crusade transformed the National Institutes of Health from a single poorly funded entity to the greatest medical research facility on the planet. So we are gonna learn more. We're gonna do a deep dive into Mary Lasker's life, but I wanna just say welcome. Um, And is there anything on your mind, Judy, as
3: as we're getting started today? Well as much as I'd and thank you very much for having me by the way. You're, you're so welcome. As much as I'd like to take credit for the fairy godmother moniker, it was not me. Okay. Um, it, was, it was a journalist um who actually um called her that for not very nice reasons at a time as Mary was doing her work. She, it wasn't always smooth sailing. And there were occasions where she was um, called a number of things. And so the fairy godmother of medical research was sort of a slam. But I think it's great. I really do. <laughs> Me too. And, you know, we were talking before the show started. Just the, you know,
2: sometimes it is difficult for women. And when they're trailblazers, oftentimes, you um, there can be things that can be said about them that malign their worth, their dignity, their their self respect. So I imagine there maybe that might be part of the story as well. So, but go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Was it truly the case? It
3: truly was, because um, Mary uh, was born in 1899. So when she began her uh, lobbying work, um, she called herself a citizen lobbyist. It was um, about 1941. And this was not a time when women were often seen pounding the halls of Congress or hanging around the NIH laboratories. And NIH, by the way, is the... Abbreviation for National Institutes of Health. It's just easier to say. And um, so it was, it was an anomaly to see a woman, you know, Frances Perkins had been in FDR's White House. Uh, There was another woman that FDR had really as his uh, right hand, whose name was Anna Rosenberg. A wonderful biography came out about her in March of this year, and she, ironically, was a very good friend of Mary Lasker's. So these two um, really were just great pioneers in terms of being able to sway presidents to get things done.
2: Well, and when you think about, I mean, it wasn't too, you know, women didn't get the vote. I mean, it was about, you know, 20 plus years right after that she was doing the lobbying that women were even allowed to vote. And right. I, think, I think it's hard to, for maybe the younger generations that, you know, part of my audience would be from the younger generations to know that women didn't always have the rights in the United States. No. Have now. And even I I was a teacher of family medicine for many years, and I I worked with really one of the smartest doctors. Um, and she told me that when she went to, to UCLA... Um, and this would have been in the 70s. And I think in her class there were only three women. Yep.
3: Yep. Now, that yep. wouldn't be the case today, but that
2: was not that's not too long ago, really. It's
3: not. The statistics were incredibly um lopsided. And not only was she then a minority, but she probably wasn't very welcomed because the male students um they really, they were either distracted by the fact that there was a female. So if she was pretty, that was going to be a problem. And other than that, it was just, it was weird having a woman. And, um, and, and this is kind of an interesting segue that I was hoping to toss in my next book project that I'm currently uh, working on is about the women's health revolution or women's health movement that went on in the seventies and eighties and nineties at the same time as the civil rights movement and the AIDS movement, women not only were underrepresented in the medical field and in the research fields, but women um, were never included in clinical trials because we have those pesky hormones that might skew the trial, but then those same drugs were, were, um, Prescribed to women, so they 'd never been tested on women. The proper dosage had never been um, decided upon and and it 's not men 's faults it it was the way it was, and so it was just such an anomaly to have women in medicine at that time or women in government or women lobbying for something as important as medical research.
2: well, yeah, I can remember when they were doing um, reading something a while back about um, when they were developing. Um, the treatment for for heart conditions, and that they hadn't ever studied the medications on women because of that very reason, because we have periods. That's that right. Kind of would mess up their, their, right.
3: their periods people. or menopause or yeah. you know it would, and the same was true for stents. Stents were created for male vessels male uh blood vessels which are much larger than women's and so they were like holy crap women aren't little men like we thought they were they actually look entirely different
2: <laughs> well and i think we do some things a little bit differently too cuz i do think that sometimes women have a different perspective of the world we were talking about the tending and befriending that women do as part right. of like who we are that we yeah. were traditionally the ones who took care of the children who protected the social group and thank goodness you know our roles have expanded but that doesn't change the fact that we may have a really primal need to make sure that our social group is safe and that's right. that and that's something that um
3: i really love about women actually that they tend to do that yep that's absolutely true um mary um was married to a man who suffered from depression was an alcoholic um, she divorced him after about five years of marriage, it was during the Great Depression, and he just completely shut down. And so she said, you know, I, I to for, to preserve myself, I had to leave him. She uh, then married the wonderful Albert Lasker who is the father of modern advertising. He was brilliant. He was very wealthy. And he taught Mary not only how to fundraise, but to friendraise. And she carried that with her the rest of her life because having a social group, having friends is important in, in any field but when you've got your your tribe your whether they're women or men but when you've got your friend's tribe to rely on it makes whatever your mission in life is so much easier
2: and i think it helps us through the hard times mm-hmm. um, as and it is and it's also very joy, joyous to celebrate during those good times of our life that we have this tribe around us well so let me i'm going to ask you a personal question judy and you said it was okay sure. that you we had a diagnosis of cancer. I imagine that like for many people, it kind of throws you off your feet for a while and kind of gets your bearings. And so can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, what happened to you in terms of here, you started a nonprofit after that, you're doing this book about Mary Lasker. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your personal story before we get to do a deeper dive into Mary's life?
3: Sure. So I had already discovered the the joy of of writing biographies i th- i thought i w- i wanted to be the next great american novelist and um then just sort of stumbled on the first story that became my my first biography and um Was in the process that I wrote that book. I had another book. My second book came out. It not only was a bestseller, but it was purchased for a movie. So then I was looking for the next book to write. And um, I married the most wonderful man in the world. I was a newlywed. My son was, um, my younger son had just started this relationship with. A wonderful woman who became his wife. And um, my oldest son was already married and was a career Air Force counterintelligence agent and was about to deploy to Afghanistan. So I had all this going on in my life, the good, the bad. And then I hear Oh, and you have breast cancer, and not just any breast cancer. Triple negative means it's not fueled by any hormones. It's very aggressive. It's very rare, and it's difficult to treat. And it was two months after a clean mammogram, and I was just scratching my chest one day, just randomly, and said, "Oh my gosh!" And so I asked my new husband to feel it because men will feel your boobs if you ask them to, <laughs> and um, yes. he wow. was like. I don't know where that came from. When I had my surgery and I had my mastectomy, um, there was much more cancer in my breast and had that one little lump kind of in my cleavage not become um, palpable, by the time I had felt the others, it would most definitely have spread to my lymph nodes and we probably would not be having this conversation. So- At the end of it all, I kind of made a deal with God. Look, I know this is in your hands, but if I live, I want to do something with this. So after treatment, I started meeting other women survivors of all cancers and there was a common thread that they were they were giving back to the greater good. Whether they'd started their own um nonprofits or they had they were volunteering or maybe it was just random acts of con- of kindness. They were taking their own anxiety and their own pain and using that as sort of a beam to guide them into helping others. And it, it became clear that there is healing in helping. And I started thinking about that. And then some of my previous research, I um, had learned about post-traumatic growth, which I'm sure you know, and, and in fact I even. It track down the wonderful um psychologist who had had coined the phrase researcher who had coined the phrase so a second act had that mission alone we raised money with live storytelling events so a cast of eight women who had auditioned for a position in the cast that year, um, told the stories, not of their cancer journeys, because it, it having cancer is awful. You know, you lose your hair, you lose weight, you throw up, it's all of that. That wasn't the story I wanted them to tell. I wanted to tell them about the phoenix rising from the ashes and how they got the idea To create their second acts, which might have been environmentally related or educational or animals or cancer related. And then the money we raised, the first purpose was to make micro grants for survivors who wanted to launch or grow their second acts. And then we started doing workshops and girls night out events. And because of a second act, I met the woman who became the inspiration for my next book, which wasn't the Mary Lasker book yet. It's called Crusade, or it's called um, From Shadows to Life. And it was a group biography about the cancer survivorship movement. Cancer was thought to be contagious right up until the 70s and 80s. So survivors lived in the shadows. They um, they couldn't join the military. They couldn't adopt children. They could be fired for having a cancer diagnosis. You probably remember, Elaine, because we shared that we're baby boomers. You could be asked on a... Um, on a work or an employment application if you'd had cancer because employers thought, well, they're going to get sick again or die and it's going to cost me money. So this group came together and said, it stops. And they eventually changed legislation. There became um, an, an, um, an amendment to the, um, not the civil liberties. What's the what was the act? The AIDS uh, Aid to Disability Act or the yes. the Disability Act. Yeah, there was an amendment to that that included survivorship, cancer survivors, and they defined cancer survivorship as beginning at the moment of diagnosis because that's when you start surviving cancer. So it doesn't matter whether you live five years, two years, one year. You're a survivor from that time on. So and doing
2: so inspiring, I think I often say on this show, what else is true? Yeah, and, you know, really has to do with that. And so you created this whole other nonprofit and this movement
3: that is it still going on? Your nonprofit? Well, the movement, the movement started many years earlier in the 80s. I simply um got excited about it and wrote that book, which begins with Richard President Richard Nixon signing the National Cancer Act which was Mary Lasker's really, one of her greatest achievements. So I kind of met Mary Lasker in that book and realized, oh, this boss babe needs her own book. So it was sort of the book that just came out, Mary Lasker's story, Crusade to Heal America is really the prequel to that book. But it was it's just all of these, these healthcare heroes that never get um, attention. Well, in health and also I'm noticing that these are women and so
2: sometimes the women didn't get attention so we really want to hear about that but first I want to say to you Judy, thank you for your inspirational work for taking what happened to you and creating a, the, a second act and providing so much opportunity for people to learn thank you. in a different way about what else is true I mean this is I think you know how do we cultivate well-being in a world when there's so much suffering right. and I mean it's, and, I, and you didn't and you acknowledge that there was suffering. But yeah. that wasn't the whole story. And I think sometimes we end with the suffering and not realizing that there's other aspects and avenues that are actually hopeful and optimistic, even when faced with such, at times, tragedy. Right. So thank you. Thank you for your work. So that's what I'm saying. Judy that's Pearson, right. you're remarkable too. Well, oh, so, thank you. <laughs> let's talk about Mary Lasker now. Okay. I'm sure, we, we we say a little bit about her. So can you give us a little bit about the background of Mary?
3: You've already given us a little bit. Is there anything more you want to add to it? Well, she... I, I'm always curious as to why people do the things they do so selflessly. You know, what what causes courage and what causes selflessness? And in Mary's case, um, she was born and grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, about an hour from um, Milwaukee. Her mother was an Irish immigrant who arrived all by herself at the age of 18 um, and became a very successful businesswoman in Chicago. Her father, Mary's father, was... As a successful uh, banker in Watertown. And her mother, in particular, her father was more reserved but he had the financial resources for Mary to go to college, which in that age was also rare. I mean, she started in college in um, 1918. And her mother, because of being a self-starter, a businesswoman, an immigrant, she was the progressive one that really wanted both her daughters, Mary had a younger sister, to be educated. And she gave them... A love of natural beauty, flowers, and trees were really important to um, Mary's mother, as was helping people in need, um, and, and just civic uh programs. When Mary was about five, her mother took her to visit the family laundress. And I just have to stop here and explain. Mary Lasker did an oral history that spanned Three decades. She asked that it not be released until her death, which occurred in 1994. And Columbia University, who had done the oral history, also transcribed it. So I had this marvelous resource of Mary's actual words that I could use in the book. So Mary describes this visit when she was about five or six to the family laundress who had just had um, a double mastectomy for breast cancer and her mother Sarah was explaining that Mrs. Belter had had her breast removed and Mary said I looked at my mother and said you mean like cut off and Sarah said yes that was it and when they got there Mrs. Belter was lying on this low cot with this little assemblage of children her children around her and Mary said it was such a pitiful scene that she just made up her mind that she was going to, if she ever had the opportunity, work to change that. And so because of her marriage to Albert, um, she was given that opportunity and she she made good on her promise.
2: Isn't it interesting that that little that pivotal moment of her mother taking her somewhere that changed her vista forevermore yep. and what she ended up dedicating her life to?
3: Yep, exactly. Did she ever say what happened to the to the lady, whether she lived or died? Definitely. She did not. She, she did didn't. not. But I can't imagine, you know, there was no other treatment than surgery at that time, which would have been about 1904, 1905. Hard to imagine someone living. Yeah. yeah.
2: We've come such a such a long way, haven't we, when you think so about it. So far. Can you say a little more about what Mary's crusade was? I mean, we now know the story about that that inception.
3: So she and Albert um, were both interested in healthcare and, and making America healthy. And prior to their meeting, both of them had this brush with cancer. That was Mary's, Albert's younger brother had died of cancer about five years before he and Mary met and um they they had decided that they wanted to make cancer their mission so they went to what was then called Roosevelt Institute it's now Roosevelt University and met with the um the CEO with the intent of making a donation and they asked what new work was being done in cancer and he said well there is no new work and they asked the doctor well why not and he said Because there are no new ideas. And they kind of, Mary realized, it's sort of the chicken or the egg. If you're not doing research, you won't come upon new ideas. But if there aren't new ideas, you don't know quite what to research. So then Mary made a visit to the American Society for the Control of Cancer, whose headquarters was near their home in Manhattan. And same question, what kind of research are you doing? And the doctor said, none. Same answer. There's nothing to research. So together, Mary and Albert decided if there were no ideas and there was no research being done, that they would start a foundation to underwrite what Albert called um, research bargains. He wanted to find people who were independently starting their own research and give them small financial awards, which were about $1,000 a piece and they began that in 1944. Well, excuse me, 1942. Well, here we are um, all these years later, the foundation still exists. The awards are now $250,000. And about a third of all Lasker Award recipients have gone on to win Nobel Prizes. So they're they're fine. there are more Lasker recipients than Nobel recipients. So if the numbers were more in a line, they'd probably be almost perfectly the same march towards uh, the Nobel Prize. Then the other thing they discovered, just going to some um health subcommittee meetings in Congress, both the Senate and the House, that during World War II, at the outset of World War II, there was this big rush of men to volunteer, and it was primarily men. And about 40% of all those who volunteered were rejected for um, healthcare reasons that were easily taken care of. So they said, okay, clearly we need to up this research.
2: So so they were actually you know knocking on
3: the doors to saying why is this not being done correct correct and Albert had worked on the shipping board he'd headed up the shipping board under president Harding and he said to Mary even our money can't um can't increase the research to the point that it needs to be but I'll show you where to get money it's the federal government And that was when Mary decided she met a friend, the wife of a friend of Albert's, and together they started on this citizen lobbyist thing. She called herself a catalytic agent. She didn't need the money. She didn't need any money. She didn't want any attention. She simply wanted to light a fire under the government to fund the researchers who could potentially come up with life-saving ideas, which indeed they did. So catalytic catalytic
2: agent is that what you said? I love yeah. that word. So, and so when she was I and mean, when you're saying how they attacked this problem was they gave this money, the one thousand dollars, what people applied, I imagine, to say they had an idea, and then they knocked on the doors of congressmen. That's center. right. We need to do something differently. This is affecting Was there any epidemiology at that point that they had x amount of people were dying from
3: cancer every year where we were at that stage yet or not? Well, and so that's the interesting thing. Again, in 1942, 75% of all American deaths occurred from heart disease or cancer. So heart disease included, they kind of s- divided out heart attack and stroke. Today, we, we just call it heart disease and then all cancer. So three quarters of all American deaths were caused by those two groups of diseases. So it was just clear that, and the National Institutes of Health was singular, even though the Cancer Institute existed, it was just sort of a poor stepsister that wasn't really its own institute. So not getting funding by the government at this point. A little bit. A little but bit again,
2: but not anything that where it really could make huge substantial changes in the no. research being
3: done. No. Okay. And so cancer, a cancer diagnosis was a death sentence. And everybody sort of threw up their hands and said, well, it's the will of God. And that infuriated Mary. And she said it's not the will of God. We can do this.
2: Well, I hope someone writes um, you know, a screenplay from this book that you've written, because I think I would go, I would want to see this done. I mean, to see her advocacy. I see Meryl Streep as the lead. Okay, there we go. Okay, we're going to say, Meryl, if you're listening... We got to get a screenplay about this book and you're going to play Mary Lasker. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Well, we're going to we're going to take a, a quick break, Judy. Um, I I am so fascinated. I we we we're, I feel like we're just getting into the the heart of of Mary and what she did, and we want to hear more about this kind of metamorphosis of the Nih. So we will we will talk more about after we come back from the break. So um we are gonna we're gonna be back in just a couple of minutes, and we're gonna continue our conversation with Judy Pearson. And
3: what is the name of the book? Say it again, Judy. The book is "Crusade to Heal America: The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker." All right, and where can they
2: get this book? Probably Amazon, anywhere,
3: anywhere and, books are sold, bookstores, books are Amazon, sold. Barnes and Noble. You bet, online or in brick and mortars. Yeah, and I, I
2: love the title. But you know, you should and it should say by remarkable woman judy pearson i guess that would be self-serving huh? they wouldn't do that all right we'll be back in Just we'll just we'll be back in just a couple of minutes and we're going to hear from our sponsor the trauma resource institute
1: follow voice america at facebook.com forward slash voice america for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts
0: the Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and in communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information.
4: Elaine miller Kerris' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. Elaine Miller- Kerris co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency model or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute, build resilience, awaken hope.
0: Your life, your health, your network.
4: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Welcome back. I'm here with with Judith L. Pearson. I call her Judy. And we are talking about the um the remarkable woman Mary Lasker um, in her latest book, The Crusade to Heal America, the remarkable life of Mary Lasker that you can buy anywhere that sells good books. So, right. uh, let's continue and talk about this amazing person. So, after she started knocking on the doors and, you know, they're giving the money, you know, these little chunks of money to do research. And what happened next?
3: So the first institute, actually, that she and her, her gal pal Florence um, got approved from by Congress was the uh, Institute for Mental Health, which eventually left the National Institutes of Health and is now an entity in and of itself. But it was a great lesson for Mary and Florence because they were all excited the NIH is now going to be plural. And someone said to them, well, how much money did you get? And they said, well, $5 million. And the person said, no, that's how much money was approved, how much was appropriated. And all of a sudden, they realized there was a lot more to this lobbying than they thought there was. So... She, It was a steep learning curve that then you have to go to a different set of, of senators and congressmen to have money appropriated for the creation of these institutes. Mary's fingerprints, besides mental health, are on um, the institute for, it's now called, um, there's a Heart Institute, there's a Blood and Lung Institute, the Eye Institute. Um <clears throat> and the Institute for Infectious Diseases. And then the blueprint actually for, from the Heart Institute was the creation of the Heart Institute became the blueprint for all the others that came afterwards. Now, did she create the blueprint? With no, them? no, just just that's figuratively. No, she just lobbied these um, the congressmen and the senators who then knew what to do. She made friends with them. Um, she was a democrat and so and so because all of her friends in congress were also democrats it was easy for the republicans to see well you know she's on that side but the important thing to remember is that disease is bipartisan it cancer doesn't care whether you're a republican or a democrat and a case case in point was um was a a Senator to whom she'd gone for money to create the Eye Institute, and he said, No, we don't need an eye institute. Practically threw her out of his office, and um, excuse me, no, that was the to um, the Heart Institute, and about Two weeks later, he asked her, invited her back in. And she said, I don't understand your change of heart. And he said, well, my father just had a heart attack. And I understand now its importance. The Eye Institute story was just a senator who called her out of the blue. And again, she went in and said, so what gives? Why are you supporting the Eye Institute? And he said, my mother is blind. I'm happy to see if, you know, her difficulties can be, um, helped by for other people by more money going to research. So I don't know why she called herself a catalytic catalytic agent.
2: Exactly. They, right, and so I have to ask you, being a you know a licensed psychotherapist myself, you know mental health back in the '40s. I mean, it's you know it was barely spoken about. You know, last year. <laughs> so That's what, right. You have any idea of how she came across that?
3: Well, part of it was because of her first, first husband um, having depression. And and at, at, in those days, alcoholics were put in what they called asylums with the mentally ill. And the mentally ill were everything from a mild case of depression to people who were could potentially be harmful to themselves and others and they were all just thrown into one big place and she felt so badly for her ex-husband um she actually supported him financially through the end of his life because he was they he had an art gallery that he had inherited from his father but it just ran into ruin and and so her interest was as a part of that and um but the bigger interest was to research then to learn how to maybe just like prevention we we use the term prevention for heart disease and cancer well what if there were things that could be done that could be done that could prevent mental illness or at least create mental well-being and in fact it was called the mental hygiene movement where you know if we can teach people how to be mentally healthy then they won't have problems later on and i don't know if that's true but that was mary's hope well, I think that's true. <laughs> I think if
2: we can, well, you know, we can help people learn skills of well-being. I think that it can mitigate, reduce the impact of, for example, adver- adverse child experiences that leads to a lot of mental health
3: conditions. So, wow, she was really a visionary. Absolutely, and in fact, um, one of the doctors um, who I interviewed, who was a younger much younger man and knew Mary, um, he said to me, mental health needs a Mary Lasker, just like cancer had, because cancer also was not spoken about in those days because there really was never a good outcome. So there was no point in talking about it. So it was called the big C and people, patients sometimes weren't even told that they had cancer. And um, mental health is very much in the, and, and it was misunderstood. Cancer was just like mental health is. Well, and I guess I have to say right now, I want to just acknowledge um, uh,
2: Rosalind Carter that just died because she, of course, in the 70s became a champion for yes. mental health um, funding. Yes. And, you know, she was one of those champions. And yes. God bless yes. her for that. Yes, God yes. bless her for that. And the Carter Institute is kind of a living legacy for that right now. So yes. we have those things in existence because of Remarkable Women. That's right. No, so, you know, I'm um, hearing other passions that she had. Are there other things besides the medical field, medical research um, that she was passionate about that you'd like to bring into the conversation?
3: Well, her degree was in art history. So she had a great passion for fine art, particularly the Impressionists, which having been a, a I majored in French in college. I, I went to uh, college in uh Brittany, the the, uh, province of Brittany for a year, um, went back to France many, many times. So impressionist art, art which had its start in France, is very near and dear to my heart. And then once again, once she married Albert, the two of them had one of the largest fine art collections in America. The remarkable thing about that was that When Mary um, needed extra funding for the foundation after Albert died, he sadly died also of cancer in 1952. They called it abdominal cancer. I think it was probably colon cancer, and it was a, a recurrence of a previous cancer. But when she needed additional funding for the Lasker Foundation, she sold artwork when interferon was being researched, which is a blood derivative that's very expensive to um, to create or to, to get from blood samples, when she thought that might be the silver bullet and neither the uh, National Cancer Institute nor the Amer- American Cancer Society were researching that, she sold an entire collection of Japanese impressionistic art to the tune of about $4 million so that she could get some money to send some American researchers to Scandinavia where it was being researched so that they could proceed here. Um, She was, and and with regard to flowers, she felt that, again, because of her mother, she felt that if we were surrounded by beauty, if humans were surrounded by beauty or had access to some kind of beauty, that it would lighten the load, that it would lift your spirits. Not everyone could afford the kind of art collection that she had, but people could certainly appreciate flowers. So Mary Lasker is responsible for planting the center median of all of Park Avenue for planting the, the um, cherry trees at the United Nations for all of the daffodils all over Washington, D.C., for a big swath of flowers in Central Park. She was great friends with Lady Bird Johnson and actually helped her launch her Beautify America program as her first lady um thing like Rosalind Carter's was mental health ladybird mental health ladybirds was beautifying America
2: well you know the way you describe her I mean she sounds like like almost a living angel were there any kind of challenges to her personality that you encountered as you were doing the research was she could she be difficult at times or I don't know if you have anything to illuminate about the other challenges that we sometimes yeah. have as,
3: as a. she was incredibly in her... good single-minded i mean she just the the cure for cancer was became all she could focus on especially after albert died and she she kept saying just a simple pill that a simple doctor can give to a suffering patient it must be out there and when the national cancer institute started being bogged down by all the bureaucracy she got really frustrated so just to explain, the National Cancer Institute lived lives lived under the auspices of the National Institutes of Health, which lived under the auspices of the Public Health Service, which lived within what we now call HU Health Education and Welfare. So if the NCI director wanted to hire a new scientist, he had to go through all those levels. To get the new hire approved and by the time he got approval the scientist had moved on he needed a job he needed an income he couldn't sit around and wait so mary said to lyndon johnson i think you know we we are sending a man to the moon we're working on exploring outer space i want us to explore inner space why don't we Think of a moonshot to cancer for cancer. It was Mary Lasker who came up with that phrase. Not anybody since it was her. And and she said, we need to create an agency like NASA that is not under anybody's thumb other than the president. It reports directly to the president. So she really started ramping up the crusade then. And when Richard Nixon was elected, she said to her friends in inner oral history, oh, man, he's going to be the biggest disaster this country's ever seen. Ironically, he became what she called probably our most sympathetic president ever. So in 1968, he's reelected or he's elected, and at the same time, Senator Ted Kennedy, um, same year, said Senator Ted Kennedy had the whole Chappaquiddick incident happen. A few years later, Ted Kennedy's name was floated all over the place as a potential presidential candidate. Nixon did not want to run again against another Kennedy. He liked Jack Kennedy quite a bit, not so much Ted, but the bottom line was he just didn't want to hassle with the Kennedy family again. Senator Kennedy... Wanted redemption. He wanted some kind of a program that could get the public eye off him as a presidential candidate and help them forget. Chappell- just interrupt for just a second. The the, the incident was about um,
2: um, a supposed affair with a particular person, and that she died tragically in a automobile accident where she went into a lake, and right. there was, and he apparently was in the car with her. There was a lot of innuendo about involvement and it was a huge scandal during that time. I just want to let our audience know that may not have any idea what the chapel quidick. Thank you. <laughs> We're yes. Baby boomers, right? We remember all these right. things. It was That's
3: a right. huge huge political scandal. So he wanted oh, redemption. So right. go ahead. He wanted redemption, Nixon wanted re-election, and Mary wanted a cure for cancer. And these three unlikely people came together. She recommended to um to Kennedy that they pursue a plan that had started actually with President Kennedy and then President Johnson to put together a panel that would research what needed to be done to accelerate cancer research. And the number one thing was removing the National Cancer Institute from NIH and making it its own NASA-like organization, and the number two thing was to infuse unheard of amounts of money into research. An enormous political battle ensued. And in fact, I didn't really know, I know a lot about history, I guess, but I didn't know anything about how a bill actually gets through Congress. So researching that and trying to make that concise was difficult. At the end of the day, the National Cancer Act of 1971 was signed on December 23rd. Um, so we're coming up on the anniversary by President Richard Nixon, who at the time called it probably one of the most um, significant acts of his administration. And as we know, it really, its sadly, he's not remembered for it, but it really was a significant act. It infused 11 points, excuse me, It infused $1.4 billion into cancer research. That's over $11 billion in today's money, unheard of amount over the next five years. The National Cancer Institute remained in NIH, but it answers now only to the president. So Mary got got
2: way. She got her way. Well, I also think, you know, just for a pause here, I mean, Judy, do you think that Mary Lasker's efforts um, in terms of... You know, really being that catalytic instigator um, is one of the reasons why, for example, there's there is research about your cancer that you could take the treatments that make us have this possibility of conversation today?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. My drugs or or anybody else's treatments may not have been specifically the result of that cancer act, but every step is a step closer. And there's a very famous quote by um, um, by a mathematician who said, if I have seen farther, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. And that's exactly... What happened with these researchers. And I believe that with all my heart, that everybody who came after that, our treatment was all made different because of the National Cancer Act. Well, and I have to say
2: that, you know, on a personal note, my husband was diagnosed with melanoma a year ago, a very virulent kind of melanoma. He's been, has had radiation, he has immune therapy every three weeks. Um, And they told us that 10 years ago, they would not have had the treatment for this particular kind of cancer. So I I know that these efforts make a difference, you know, on a very personal level in people's lives, as it does for you, as it does for me. And so, you know, when people say, oh, there's too much money, go to research. Well, maybe there's not enough money going to research because we're finding out the solutions to things that, you know, I think of that that woman with all the children around her who the double mastectomy, that kind of the inception
3: of, of Mary's story. So, and the people who say, excuse me for interrupting, the people okay. who say there's too much money going to research, that's what the senators and congressmen told Mary, too, until their family members or they were diagnosed with cancer. So
2: it's clear to me that she didn't work alone on these projects. I mean, you're just, you're describing Nixon, Ted Kennedy. Um, did she have a team of people that worked with her or was she kind of like the you know,
3: very singularly purposeful person that kind of did it all herself? She Well, her first um, sort of uh, partner in crime was Florence Mahoney, who I mentioned earlier. And Mary said in her oral history that not only did it help to have someone else to bounce ideas off of, but she said, if I'd gone pounding around Congress, people would have just thought I was a nut. But since there were two of us, it was less likely they thought that. Um, And and then, of course, because... um, she knew so many people in in society and in Washington, DC. She was great friends with the Kennedys, all of uh, the Kennedy family, the Johnsons, other important people, lots of celebrities. Um, all of that was helpful. And she was very good at remembering the fundraising or the friend raising to fundraise. So she would, you know, encourage her friends to donate to Republicans and Democrats who favored medical research. Did, to her, it didn't matter who was elected as long as they were really bent on um, progressive, progressively or um aggressively pursuing medical research. And then um, it also um, didn't hurt that she had a wonderful assistant called Jane, who did everything for her. And uh, Jane, too, died of metastasized breast cancer. I mean, it just just kept following Mary around. But Jane was really important to Mary. So
2: do you think that her greatest accomplishment was what she did with cancer or what would you say is her greatest accomplishment
3: i think i think it was probably it, it was cancer it was also i mean it would have been so easy for her to do nothing to just give money it, you know here here's a check and hopefully um it would it would arrive at the right place at the right time to make a difference. She could have just done nothing but lunch and go to dinner parties in the theater and eaten bonbons in her bed. But instead, (laughs) no, she went to sleep with papers strewn all around her, medical reports, newspaper articles, clippings. And then her day started with breakfast in bed and she was back at reading and making phone calls and, and either, doing something in New York City or hopping on the train and heading down to Washington DC. So do you do you wonder
2: if times would have been different for her? Here she was born at the end, was it would you say um 1899, 18, 90, yeah. 1899. That so when she was coming to age when I guess would have been the kind of the roaring twenties. Um, if she would have had the opportunity to become a physician, which was not that available to women at that time, do you think that would have been her course or do you think that the you know art history would have been her course? I mean, options for women were, were limited and even going to college was limited.
3: I think, um, and I actually used her words for the chapter titles, so phrases that she would say, including, I'm just a catalytic agent. The first chapter uh, is entitled, New York was the place, because she said after graduation, well, I wanted to go into the gallery business, and New York was the place. And so she landed in 1923 in New York City and just was loving the world that she was living in, but it's still, I think she, I don't think she would have wanted to be a doctor. I don't think that ever entered her mind, but the idea of helping people was important to her. So if she'd never married Albert, I think she would have found ways, um, maybe not as quickly to do what she did, but it certainly was in her genes and in her makeup to do what she could to help people, no matter what that meant.
2: So I'm just wondering, Judy, and maybe a bold statement that I can make, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I have a hunch with this book that this may be one of your um, also reasons that you want to help people too.
3: Could that be true or not? It, It very well, it could be. I think I think we learn so much from history. In fact, inscribed over the doors of the National Archives in Washington, D.C., are the words past is prologue, which means whatever's happened before is just the beginning of what's going to happen next. And I think that's true. I think that it's very um, it's very easy to sit back and say, oh, we'll just let somebody else do it. But Mary Lasker is a really great um example of people just saying, well, I'm not going to sit back. So what do you think her mission would, would be today if she was alive? I'm not sure she would have accepted what we know to be true. And that is that cancer isn't one disease. It's many diseases. So she probably still would have been banging the drum about find a pill, find a pill. On the other hand, I think the um, burgeoning interest in, um, in mental illness would have really not pleased her that people were mentally ill, but it would have pleased her that it is becoming more acceptable to speak about it. There's much more research being done. Um, she was also very interested in the AIDS movement toward the end of her life um so she would have been gratified to know the advances that we were able to make um in aids in the treatment of of aids and hiv um but i think mental illness really would have been um her her great interest and once i finish this next book my son my younger son has been after me he's like mom i think it's you got to go to mental illness next <laughs> i really i hope that you do that and i'm i'm wondering what do you hope that your book is going to accomplish? Well, okay. So I'm going to share with your audience that you had said you you like to ask about quotes as well and what the book will accomplish. So it's kind of a, a joint response because I love quotes. Um, Margaret, um, oh my gosh, getting old is terrible. I can't remember things. Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead, who is a cult- yes. cultural anthropologist, said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. My hope would be that people will take that to heart. Just like Mary did, you know, every little spark, every little step is a step in the right direction. Do what you can. And and Judy, say the name of your book one more time. We got 30 seconds left crusade to heal america the remarkable life of mary lasker go to judith l pearson p-e-a-r-s-o-n dot com and you can read the prologue
2: and i just want to say thank you to you judy for writing the book for sharing um mary lasker's story and to share and also the sharing of your story
3: thank you so much
2: personal story and i think it's it's quite inspirational And I wanna say to my audience, you know that every time we end, I say, what else is true? (laughs) Look at what else was true for for Judy after her cancer diagnosis and for Mary Lasker, who tragically had a first husband that had mental illness and supported him and was responsible for some of the inceptions of the Institute of Mental Health. And I can't wait till Judy does that next book about mental health. Judy, I'm going to probably have to send you some emails like nudging you to do that. (laughs) Yes. So this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within until we meet again.
1: Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern time and 1 p.m. Pacific time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. We'll talk again soon.